Creator, as we come before you to worship, as we come here to open up our hearts to you, as we do lay down our burdens, we pray that we can feel your peace and your love, that we can know that you are with us, that your arms are wrapped around us, that your spirit is here. And we pray for that spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Actually, I can't hardly see any of you, so it's actually a lie. Um, it's just lights, and that's all there is. So to start off here, I want to have you guys look at a picture with me. Not that picture. Um, that's the back of my head. And while my head is awesome, it is not the thing that... There it is. Now, you might notice that these are some bold design choices. Um, particularly the one up on the left there. I'm not sure what the thought was there um, when they were putting that together. When they realized that they had made a mistake, the solution was to cut a hole in the door that's supposed to block people from seeing you do the thing that you're doing. But by leaving a hole in there, they sort of defeated the purpose of the door. So that's interesting. Um, The one in the middle... I'm not even sure what's happening there. Um, I don't want to be the person late at night when it's dark and there's no lights, thinking that you're climbing the stairs to your place and then have it go very bad. Um, And the one over here feels like that's the door that they send people out after you're fired. Um, Maybe that was actually intentional. I don't know. But... It makes you wonder when you see some of these things, what was the actual plan there? What were they expecting to take place? And at some point, somebody came in and saw the finished product and immediately thought it has all gone very wrong, and that's a problem. I remember um, going with some friends over to Red Rocks Amphitheater. Now, these friends were from Chicago, which means they had never seen hills, let alone climbed them. So we thought Red Rocks is pretty safe. So we went up there, and they wanted to see the theater. And we're standing up there in the front of the theater, thusly staring that direction because it's a big rock wall. And we're like, ooh, rocks, because they don't have those in Chicago either. And while we're there, there's a set of stairs off to the one side that goes up to another level of the actual theater. And there was another family over there with you know, mom, dad, and a kid. And the kid was playing over there by the stairs. And at some point while we're talking over here, I heard the kid go, oh no, in this most earnest voice. He's like, oh no. And I look over and he is slowly falling off of the first step. He's not trying to catch himself. There's no windmilling. He's simply turned to the side like this going, oh no, in this slow motion thing. And he falls all the way down while dad stood there and watched. I'm not judging his parenting skills. No, I'm totally judging his parenting skills. But this kid had this look on his face, and the look on his face was like, this has all gone so wrong, as he fell all the way down, unable to do anything about it, so he just let it happen. He resigned himself to the fact that he was going to hit the ground, It is rocks. We have discussed that. Um, Turns out he was fine. I don't know. I didn't follow up afterwards. Who can say? Um, But these things happen. 
And so I was thinking about things that go wrong. And so I started thinking about our universe. And I want to propose something here, and maybe it's a little crazy, but just stay with me. But wouldn't it be great, follow me now, wouldn't it be great if God actually knew what he was doing? I know, that's, that's craziness, right? Wouldn't it be great if God knew what he was doing? I know what you're thinking. And what you're thinking likely involves me being struck about the head and or neck area with the ritual implements of stoning. You know, because of the blasphemy. But let's be honest. How many times in your life have you been through something or experienced something or seen something and you wondered, is this how this was supposed to go? Does God actually know what he's doing here? Was there a plan behind this? Now, we might not like to admit that out loud. We might not like to admit it to ourselves, that we're not sure if God is doing the right thing or that it's just not fair. But if we're asking that question, we are wondering if maybe something happened that was just not the way God was planning for that, that it was not intended, that God didn't really know what was happening. So we tend to choose the less blasphemous thing, be a little dishonest with ourselves, as opposed to being completely honest with ourselves and crossing some imaginary line where we think blasphemy resides. Because we can't handle the idea that either we don't trust God or God doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe you've never been in that dark of a place where you've seen the level of depravity and evil that would make you question whether or not God is love. So, to bring that point home, I want to show you some statistics. Maybe. We'll show you some statistics. I'll definitely speak them out loud. Every year, 25 million people are the victim of human trafficking. 25 million people. Now, to put that in perspective, That is more population, more people than the population of Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and Oklahoma combined. That's a lot of people. Is that disturbing? All right. So, pop quiz. What do you think is the third most populated state in our country? I'll give you a hint, um, California is number one, Texas is number two. What was that? Somebody said New York. That is absolutely incorrect. Um, but thank you. It is actually Florida. Florida has 21 million people. There are more victims of human trafficking than the entire population of Florida. Of that 25 million, over 4.8 million people are the victims of sex trafficking specifically. 4.8 million people. That's almost the population of Colorado. So imagine everybody in the state of Colorado. That's how many people are victims of sex trafficking each year. In America alone, a person is sexually assaulted or raped every 92 seconds. How long have we been here today? 
And every nine minutes, that person is a child. And only five out of every 1,000 perpetrators will be convicted of their crime. Now here's the part that we really don't want to hear. Most of those 4.8 million will be raped to death if they are not rescued. And only then after days, weeks, or years of it happening every single day. Now, how do we tell those people that God is love and that God has a plan? Do you think that some of those people might question whether those two things could possibly be true? As horrible and unimaginable as human trafficking is, it's not the biggest problem that humanity faces. That's scary in and of itself. There's a lot of problems, but there's a big problem, one that accounts for all the rest of the problems And I want to talk about that today, but before we get there, we're going to talk about something else first. I want to introduce you to something, and maybe you've heard of it already. Most of you probably have, but in case you haven't, we're going to talk about it. And it's called the infinite monkey theorem. It'll get there. The origin of this theory, how many of you have heard of the infinite monkey theorem? Okay, some of you have. The origin is a little bit of a hot topic because nobody's exactly sure who coined it, but they believe that it was first coined by French mathematician Emile Borel in 1913. And the theory goes something like this. If you put a monkey in a room with a typewriter, give him an infinite amount of time, this mythical immortal monkey will eventually bang out the entire works of Shakespeare. Beyond that... Anything that was ever written beyond that, possibly anything that ever happened in the past, present, and will happen in the future, given enough time. Now, some of you, having actually read Shakespeare, might think this might actually be how Shakespeare came out. And that uh, the name Shakespeare is actually the literary nom de plume of uh, some monkey named Steve. However, I'm not promoting this. I am not some savage who doth not appreciate the bard. That said, I can't prove that it's not true, so take it as you will. So, let's jump forward to the year 2002. And at that point, a group of students and lecturers from the University of Plymouth set out to prove this theory by getting a grant from their university for an art project in which they locked a computer in a cage with six crested macaques, those are monkeys for those of you who didn't know, in a zoo for a month in Devon, England. So, would you like to see how that turned out? So you see here, The monkey has really hit its S phase and really leaned into it hard. Hit the H, that was great. There's some cues in there. It's really mixing it up a little bit. Um, Found the A button, um, went back to S's, and then right here, let's pause here for a moment. This is where the lead monkey grabbed a rock, beat the computer to death, 
and then soiled it. You can't make this stuff up. So the researchers, researchers, were asked what did they learn, and I quote, we learned an awful lot. That's what they said. Now, the actual purpose of this theory, um, which has a significant math component, I would tell you what that is, but I don't know how math works. I studied theology. We don't know math. And if you've ever, well, we'll just stop right there. But it was to show that random, given enough time, can produce anything. Now, why do I bring this up? It's because I want to talk about proper planning. Let's take architects. We saw some pictures at the beginning. I'm thinking the planning didn't go well. But if you talk to architects and planners and contractors, they don't just grab a bunch of building materials, toss them about on the ground, and hope for the best. That's not how we get buildings like the Sears Tower. That's not how bridges come together. In fact, nothing that we have that we use today came together because we just threw stuff in a room until it happened. They had to plan for it. What is its purpose going to be? How many people is this building going to hold? Does it need to survive things like fire, earthquakes? Um, what does it need to look like? What are the best materials to hold all the weight that this building is going to have? And there's all these other different construction techniques. Which one is going to be the best? But perhaps the most important question that they have to answer is which problems can be predicted and what is the plan to solve them both in advance and at the time of the problem? That's actually an important question, right? Now, if architects didn't do this, we would not have skyscrapers, we would not have anything else, and if we did, it wouldn't last very long. Nothing that we have would exist without good planning. And yet, even though we know this is true, sometimes, when we talk about God and the plan of salvation, even though we know better, we think about it as though it was some sort of tacked-on afterthought. Well, it all went bad, and God needed to come up with a solution. That God was somehow surprised, or if not surprised, just not entirely sure how the whole thing was going to go, and therefore created plan B just in case it all went sideways. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't think that. God is all-knowing. God can't be surprised. I would agree with you. And yet, I can't tell you how many times I have heard Christians, Adventists among them, waffling and coming up with complex rationalizations to avoid stating the clear implications of that truth. That truth being that God knows everything. And those implications are, there was no plan B. There was really no plan A. There was simply the plan. One plan, one that happened to involve a fallen humanity. And that plan was simple. The lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 13. 
For those of you using Pew Bibles, that's page 1137, 1137, Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. You always know it's going to be good scripture when there's a beast with mouths. Just if you're ever wondering what the standard of good scripture is, it's right there. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also it was, given, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you catch that part? Before the foundation of the world. That's an important segment of that verse right there. Now some translations say because of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And I'm going to submit to you, it doesn't matter which way you say that. The point is, is that this was a problem that was known before creation ever took place. And here's the thing, when we tell the story of creation and salvation, we always go like this. God created humans. Humans proceeded to sin. Therefore, Jesus had to die. That's how we tell the story. But that's not actually how it took place because the story goes like this. Jesus decided to die because humans would choose to sin. And then God created humans. You recognize how that changes the story just a little bit. Now, who of us would ever do that? How many of you, if you knew that if you became pregnant, ladies, I mean, men, if it happened to you, that's fascinating. But ladies, if you knew that if you got pregnant, there was a 100% chance that you would die. It was guaranteed. Would you do it? Would any of you do that? Men, because I'm an equal opportunity offender, what if you knew that if you got someone pregnant, there was a 100% chance that you would die? Would you do that? In fact, if that was true, would any of you ever have sex again, ever? It sounds funny, but this is literally the decision that God was making. This was Jesus' decision. I want to create life, but there's a 100% chance I'm going to die if I do. That's an impossible choice. Now, in the book of Revelation, that text that we just read there, the word for foundation, and this is sort of important, um, in the Greek it is katabole, which means foundation, beginning, commencement, conception. Before the earth was even conceptualized, the book of life was already written. It was already known by God how it was all going to go. Before the words, let there be light, were uttered, they knew that it was going to get very dark. Before those words were uttered, let there be light, Jesus had to state, I will die so that they can live. 
the very first plan of creation was the willing and voluntary death of Jesus, it was never going to be any other way. And maybe we need to accept that. We need to accept that the plan wasn't that it was going to stay perfect. The plan was always that humanity was going to choose something other than love. And that raises a lot of questions. Like, why would God let that happen that way? Why do that? Why bother doing that? If God is love, which I believe with all of my heart, and the Bible seems to agree with that, and he is someone who needs to have someone to love, why would God let it happen this way? Why not stop it? Why let us choose the awful things that humans do and angels did before us? And this is where we get to that bigger root problem that we spoke about at the beginning. And the problem from which all other problems come from, and it's a shockingly simple problem. The problem is love. Everything is about love. Sounds good, right? Except everything good and everything evil comes from what I'm going to term the love paradox. If you've heard that term before, darn it, because I thought that I came up with it. If you haven't, then you can attribute it to me, copyright, TM, all of that. But here's the thing. Because there is something inextricably linked with love that if it does not exist... Love cannot exist, and that is free will. Without free will, you can't have love. And so God's problem looked like this. God is love. God wants to express love because he is love. It is his nature, and in order to do this, God needs beings to show that love too. But for love to be love, For it to be complete and true, it needs to have the ability to be reciprocated by choice, not by compulsion, and not by control. That means that the beings in this love relationship need to have the ability to choose love or to not choose love. The choice to love or not to love. They need to all have free will, but therein is the problem. If everyone has free will, given enough time, someone's going to bang out Shakespeare. Someone will eventually make an unloving choice. Given an infinite amount of time, even one person will make the dark choice and love will be broken. Now, God could stop the choice of unlove by removing free will. There's an option. But then only one person in that relationship would have the ability to love and therefore would be the only person able to show and experience love. God could program the other person to only ever show love, but it wouldn't actually be love because it was coerced. The other person would never have the ability to do anything else, therefore the love would not be true. Which meant, in order to have true love exist within a multiplicity of living beings, God had to let sin happen. And this is where the paradox problem exists. Without the potential for sin, there is no potential for love. The criteria to allow perfect love to exist are the exact same criteria to allow love to be broken and sin to become real. 
And suddenly, the plan of creation and salvation looks a little different in our heads than what we're used to thinking from our cradle roll Sabbath school mentality that we like to hold the thoughts of how this works in our minds. But because God is love and desires us to experience love, because true love is the most beautiful thing to experience in all of reality, God didn't squash free will and Jesus stepped in with a simple plan. One person would suffer and die so that everyone else in all of reality would be able to discover true love and ultimately experience its power and glory in the presence of each other and God and not experience permanent destruction. There's a whole other sermon and books about what all that means. One God would die so that love could exist forever. It's the great truth that God tried to make it clear from the beginning. I want us to look in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. That text that I was supposed to be preaching from today, but largely didn't. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. That's page 684 if you're looking in Pew Bibles. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, there's a lot of things in there that I appreciate, but the one thing that stands out to me is Isaiah's continued use of the past tense, as if it had already taken place, as though it were a foregone conclusion that this was done, that it was finished. Even Isaiah saw that it was only ever going to be that way, that the Messiah would have to die so that we could live but more importantly, so that we could love. Last week, I had a patient who died. It's hospice, so technically all my patients are going to die. But we had a conversation um, about a week before she did, and she was telling me about her children, and she had three children, two daughters and a son. And the oldest, the son, just behaved in ways that she could not understand. He stole the family business out from under the family and absolutely decimated it by taking all the money from it. Then he proceeded to steal all of her savings, which was hundreds of thousands of dollars, took it all, and then tried to conspire with his siblings to dump her in some low-rent facility somewhere without access to her funds, without any legal connection to them so that they would have no responsibility toward her. The rest of the kids did not do that. They basically ostracized this brother, cut him off from the family, and had no more contact with him. Probably rightfully so. But the thing that bothered her the most is she could not understand how her son could do this to her. No one in the family could. There was no evidence that she was some sort of abusive tyrant. Everybody loved her. The rest of her kids loved her. 
and they could not understand what would make him do that. Why would he treat her that way? And she died never knowing the answer. She never found out. She never understood. Jesus chose to die so that an entire creation could have the chance to exist. Just exist. And a chance to love him and a chance to hate him. He would die knowing who every one of them were and ever would be, and he would know every reason and rationalization, every hurt and every lie that led to their hatred. And having seen it all before it ever took place, he chose to die for their creation and love them anyway. Romans says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And in John, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And even though he saw him, we saw him as enemies, he saw us as friends and loved us and then said, go and do as I have done. If we made a list of reasons to love God and came up with as many as we could, maybe we could come up with 10,000 reasons like the song we're about to sing. But no matter how many reasons exist, I'd like to contend that we really only need the one. And I want to invite everybody to come up right now as we sing our final song. And as you do, I want you to think about the things that you've been through in your life. What are the dark places that you've experienced? How have you seen God in the middle of those? What is it that keeps you focused on being in that relationship of love? What is it that touches your heart? What is your reason? Stand and join us now as we sing this final song.